Hello and welcome to a podcast about tactics. I'm John McKenzie and I'm joined by a modern day footballing rain man and one of my greatest pals, Thiago Steval. Thiago, how are you? I'm good. I wasn't expecting you to do a different intro from last time, so now I'm scared. <laughs> I think we'll be okay. I've not put anything in there that is too different, so we'll see how we go. But <laughs> Tiago is a scouting and recruitment analyst at a Syria A Club. He has the most encyclopedic brain about footballers out of anyone else in the world. And as I mentioned last time he was on the podcast, he has the finest moustache in world football too. Before we get on to talking about what we're going to talk about today, thank you again to those of you who have signed up to the Patreon. As ever, a reminder that one of the best ways for me to build my audience is by word of mouth. So if you like this podcast, do recommend it to pals who you think would enjoy it. Anyway, enough of that. Time to get to the matter of hand. This is the second episode of a two-episode mini-series with Tiago, where we focus on the role of tactics in scouting. If you haven't listened to the first episode yet, then I would recommend you listen to it before you come to this one. The first episode covered the basic contextual aspects of the role of tactics in scouting and in this episode we're going to look at how those basics play out in practice we're going to divide our time into two looking at offensive scouting and then defensive scouting and then we'll round out with some questions sent in by our listeners anyway let's start off then with the offensive side of scouting so tiago just a a basic question to start off with there's a famous guardiola quote about and i'm paraphrasing here but all i can do is get my teams into the final third it's then up to them to score goals in terms of actually attacking football when you're scouting would you agree with that sort of statement is it simply the case that when you're looking for attacking players you are looking for those qualities in the final third that are beyond the tactical in some sense yeah to a certain extent at least in most teams right most of what you'll get as far as both attacking and defensive and midfield e scouting is <laughs> just a demand for a certain role or a certain type of player or a certain type of characteristics. And then you'll roll from there, right? And I think in most teams, attackers do have, you know, a certain amount of freedom that the rest of the team does not. But you'll still get guidelines for the type of profile that the team tends to want. I think that's kind of the the first thing. You'll have to figure out whether you want maybe a target type 9 that focuses a lot on all the play and play with back to goal in general, or if you want someone that runs in behind more, or if you want someone that has both, which is the reason why Vlaovic costs what he costs, and the reason why Olan to a certain extent brings value and players like that. Or if you play with two strikers, maybe you're able to have Someone with a little bit more of a niche skill set because you don't need someone as well-rounded to play a single role. You need to figure out if out wide you want someone that's more of a you know classic width provider or if you want more of an inside forward type of attacker. Nowadays, a lot of teams want both. So someone that can operate really well in wide areas and then can operate really well in the aft spaces and that transitions really well between both. This also has to do with the rise in fullbacks that can attack central spaces and vice versa. You need to figure out what kind of midfielder do you want and what kind of midfield composition do you have. So it's a lot of demand for roles, demand for profiles, and demand for how to integrate this profile alongside the other profiles that you currently have in the team, right? So your winger will be very dependent on what kind of nine you have and what kind of fullback is behind them and what kind of midfield composition and... You know, the midfielders are all interconnected, whether it's in a trio or in a pair. Same thing when it comes for a striker pair. We'll talk later about centre-backs, but even more so there. So it's often about roles, and I think 
the further upfield you go, the more freedom there is, like you say, as far as like behavior within the system. But I think there's still a demand from the coach or the director of football or both or whoever is creating the team's profile to get like a winger of a certain type or a winger with certain characteristics or a forward or whatever else. It's interesting hearing you talk there about individual roles. So it suggests that when you're looking for a player, you think this is what we've got in terms of our team. This is the individual role that we need to fill in recruitment. But to what extent do you make sort of decisions that are considering like a number of different roles? So if you're thinking we want to change our game style a little bit, we want to bring, in, in future maybe bring in another player. Um, so you talked about fullbacks and, and you can have obviously fullbacks who invert, fullbacks who, who go out wide. Would you ever consider like future purchases in terms of the players that you're bringing in now? So for example, yeah, if you're thinking, oh, we want to bring in an inverted fullback at some point, that might change the characteristics that we're looking for in a winger in the, on that same side. I think that type of decision tends to come from whoever's building the team, right? Because high-end decision makers are the ones that, you know, make those calls and are the ones that can kind of see into the future to a certain extent because they're the ones creating the path that will get you there, right? So if you're that person, if you're the person that is, again, planning not just short-term, but planning medium-term and long-term, then yeah, I think you can make those decisions and you can, like, suggest to pursue certain profiles, not because of a current need, but because of a future need, right? I think when it comes to me or someone that's in a position similar to mine, it's a lot more about executing in the present with orders from higher-ups. That said, when you look for young players, for example, that aren't supposed to, you know, crack the starting 11 immediately, you start valuing those things more and more, right? Or when it comes to evaluating whether a player should get a renewal or what type of salary should a player get in a renewal, that type of thing is taken into consideration, right? And I think just in general, the ability to be, you know, versatile as far as the, t- the different roles that you play and the different systems that you can play in, those are all very, very positive things because we know that as good as your current coach may be or as good as your current system may be, it will change in the future at some point. And being able to, when you're signing a player to a four or five or six year deal, or when you're renewing a player to a four or five six year deal, it's important to be able to think, is this player such a such a narrow profile that he can't play in any other system? Or if a coach of a completely different style and completely different system come up, will he still be able to be integrated in a relevant role? And if the answer is yes, then that's something that you you need to take into consideration from a positive point of view, right? And if the answer is no, you should weigh that in as well. I'm really interested in the idea of game models. Obviously, that's a it's a quite a trendy word to use out of teams at the moment. But what I find so interesting about them is that there's almost the impression given that a game model is a is a holistic thing that you just sort of sit down and you're know, like, this is our team, this is what we do. But obviously, when you're a coach and you arrive at a club. You, you do have to sort of balance off your ideal game model with with what's in the squad as well. And so there's like, almost like a symbiotic relationship between the players that you have and your game model as you go. And I'm wondering if you had any like thoughts on on how that impacts the the role of, of a scout when you're when you're thinking, you know, ideally as a manager, I would want to play this style of football, but I have these players which don't quite fit my ideal style and then you get like a bit of back bouncing back and forth where presumably the ideal game model changes a little bit to suit the players as well right i think there's also like an increase in 
managers that have a more dynamic game model and that have a more adaptative system that are more willing to just adapt on the fly and that are more willing to experiment. And I also think that the managers that aren't willing to do any of that and that are very, very narrow as far as what they do, I think those are like very clear about it, right? And I think as soon as a manager like that comes in, in theory, if your club is signing that type of manager and if your club is, you know, well run to a certain extent, everyone will be aware of this, right? Everyone will be aware that from now on there's a lot of things that need to hit in a certain way right but i think there's an increase in the reverse of that which is you know competent managers but competent managers that are a lot more adaptive and experimental to a certain extent and i think that's when the the versatility of players comes in what we were just talking about players that can be not just playing different positions because i think positions are to a certain extent a little overvalued but like players that can play in a bunch of different roles that have played in a bunch of different systems that have behaved in different ways I think that's important right and I think you also get you know when a new manager comes in you get like a little experimental timeline at the start right the first couple of months where there's often a few different systems being brought out or you know at least a few different approaches being brought out until it until it eventually settles in a successful one and during that initial timeline at least you don't you never tend to make a lot of changes unless unless that timeline comes right in the middle of a transfer window right so you know you're kind of just hoping that by the time a transfer window gets around things are more settled both as far as you know what the system is going forward and what the needs are in the view of the coach or the director of football or both so would you say that flexibility then is is a sort of trait that you would look for in players and, and you would maybe consider, well, maybe this isn't the ideal player for this role right now, but we know that going forward, there is that ability for them to maybe fit into other different roles going into the future? Yeah, I think you need to kind of try and figure out what's inerrant about a player and what's something that can be developed, right? And I think a lot of scouting work is is doing that. So obviously the younger a player is, the more can change about its skill set and about future position role, blah, blah, blah. But I think in general, what you're looking as far as the separation between what's a player's characteristics and what can be developed is, so in possession, it's mostly decision-making, like as far as, you know, a player's technical ability will develop to a certain extent if the player drops into more and more difficult situations and handling it. But I think the biggest thing that can change is decision making on the ball and then off the ball is just you know general behavior movement positioning which goes for both like attacking and and defensive stuff right and then i guess physically a player's speed never changes much a player's muscle mass can increase quite significantly if the player is trained under the right regimen for for that so i think that's something again depending on age even more so than that's something you can also count on to a certain extent but i think Understanding the coach that you have, understanding the staff that you have is key to allowing you to think of this as like something that will swing the percentages of how much a player can change. If you have a coach that is really, really good at improving, you know, players defensively, right? Like positionally or just in general, you can perhaps lean into like getting a fullback that is just pure crazy offensive output, right? And you know that given the coach's past or maybe because you have a bigger connection to the coach depending on your role you know that you know that player has inerrant skills that are great and the things that are to be improved 
the off the ball stuff, the positioning stuff, movement and all that, I think you can trust the coach that that's something that you will improve or vice versa, right? Those are just important things to consider. And it's both for like, not just the coaches, but, you know, perhaps when you have experienced members of the squad in a certain position, especially for strike, I think that's especially relevant for strikers and center backs. I think if you give a young player six months of training with perhaps a striker that has similar characteristics to him or a center back that has just a ton of experience, those will really help him as far as, you know, movement in the box for a striker or, you know, off the ball runs for a striker, general defensive positioning and timings, all of those things, right? So those are things to be considered, but perhaps if you have a really young squad, those are non-factors, right? So it doesn't necessarily cap your player development, but you don't have that route to do it through. So, you know, what is a player's characteristics and what are a player's characteristics right now, but that are bound to change if coached in the right direction? Those are important things to think about when scouting someone. Moving back towards the more offensive aspect of, of scouting here, then in the first episode, we talked a little bit about matching up players output in terms of different metrics um you mentioned talking to ben torveny about it not mattering so much about play style as long as eventual output is the same in terms of that then does that mean that a lot of what you're doing in terms of your scouting is looking for players in terms of kpis and 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 output that will fit in your system and how much of a role does that play in in your approach to the players that you'll be looking for in terms of the attacking stuff so not necessarily me and ben have talked about this quite a bit because i think it's a really interesting idea but it's an idea that's quite a tough thing to approach in football because, like, as I said in the first episode, I think there's a tendency to replace output with more of the similar output. And I don't, and I get the point of view that, like, it doesn't have to be that way. But even my brain works that way, right? And I think it's like, for it to not be that way, it will make a bigger impact in the system and that system will have to change or to adapt to a certain extent, right? And I think, unless you're confident that your coach can adapt the system really well, I think for the most part, that's not something to avoid necessarily but more of just like an interesting idea experiment rather than something that you actually do that said that's something that can be considered more often if you're a small team right if you're a team that has heavy budget limitations and as heavy like recruitment limitations and you only have a certain bunch of players to pick from then you got to do what you got to do and in that type of scenario i think replacing a player's output with similar output through a different way so you know chance creation replacing chance getting or or you know ball progression in a certain way replacing a different type of ball progression i think that's worth looking into but i think this is something that's for now at least in my eyes more of a fun discussion than a fun discussion is something to look into rather than something that i'm working with on a daily basis but i think it's a really interesting idea so you don't just sit down like they do in Moneyball and say, you know, we've got these guys who are doing this. Let's just sign three guys who can do each one of these factors. I think from that point of view, it's not that bad. I think from that point of view, it's there's a certain logic to it. And I think, again, I think there are certain scenarios where you can replicate that logic in football. I'm not sure we've experienced that yet or I've experienced that yet, rather. Well, let's move through some of the roles on the football pitch that you you mentioned let's start with wide players you've mentioned actually in your original answer in this episode just talking a lot about the the changing role of wide players in recent years players who can play a sort of classic wide role players who can play more narrowly and obviously issues around inverting players as well so players who can cut in and, and play on their stronger foot so do you want to talk a, a little bit about 
about how you think scouting wide players has changed in recent years and how, how that's impacted the scouting process? So honestly, my experience scouting wide players or players for any position is just less about the position, more about just what kind of role do you want at this time, right? And I think there have been occasions where an inside forward type is more required, whilst there have been occasions where a more well-rounded, not necessarily purely with providing, but a more like well-rounded, in-between kind of winger has been requested. Obviously, there have been changes to like how wingers have evolved and like how any position has evolved in recent years, but I don't think I approach my work like that, if that makes sense. Like, I don't necessarily feel much of a difference because I'm just purely looking for a certain type of profile and I get a certain idea for a certain type of profile that's needed and that's the profile you look for, right? I don't think I necessarily feel that much change as far as how wingers develop, apart from realizing that there's maybe very few of certain type in the market or whatever else, right? I think that's that's where where you feel most of the switch is just realizing that, you know, maybe there's not many players that fit a certain profile or and certainly not many that fit a certain profile and are within your price salary range. Beyond that, not so much. You mentioned age earlier in terms of younger players being able to be maybe more adaptable in the future and able to be have a level of plasticity, you know, the ability to develop in certain ways. I'm kind of interested in whether, whether or not you consider age in terms of the more evolutionary side of things. So as time is going on and, and these positions evolve, would you maybe have less worry signing younger players going forward because they have played in more flexible systems. This is maybe a little bit of an aside, but I was something I always think about technology with my parents. So my parents are really bad with like technology because they grew up when there was no technology. We grew up with technology. When we're older, will that mean that we're much better at dealing with technology as old people? Or is it just something that old people just get worse with technology? And I, I guess I'm kind of thinking that in terms of football position. So given that I think footballers maybe now have to be a little bit more flexible in terms of like understanding roles, would that put you off signing older players versus younger players in any way well firstly i think if you're looking for a more experienced player that has played a lot as like a classic winger i think that player is like 55 right now and i don't (laughs) think they're playing anymore i know that you've lived through a different age but (laughs) the early 2000s were filled with inverted wingers already (laughs) all i'm saying is maybe you should sign rivaldo right you you thought about that (laughs) i did not i think that's a clearly a hole in my in my (laughs) skill set so I think you might have a point, maybe. Uh, I think you also explained it in a really convoluted way. <laughs> I also, but also, you know, it's less about young and older and more just about the type of experiences they've had to a certain extent. I think as far as young players, you'll always get the benefit of, in general, they're more willing to adapt and improve and they're a lot more coachable and moldable, if you will. As far as older players or more experienced players or PKH players even, you're looking for players that have had experience in different systems and that's a plus or a player maybe gets to 25 or 26 and they've only really played a certain role in a certain type of system more or less and that's not a plus it's the opposite that's kind of a worry especially especially if you're getting that player to play a different role right i think that's about it if you're talking about an older player it matters if they played in different roles and like if they played in a role similar to the one you want him to play and just that adaptability, like whether that player has been consistent in playing different roles. Because there's tons of older PKH players that have played in different roles and have only really succeeded in one, right? Maybe they've 
got out of their comfort zone once with a big transfer and didn't work. And then they eventually went back to a more familiar role and they're back at it, right? And I think at that point, that's just a concern, except if you're signing that player to play that specific role, right? So, you know, I don't think all older players are the same. I think there's a certain value to experience. I think there's a a value that I, you know, value more and more now. I think I kind of undervalued it in the past. I think there's a certain value to experience in different scenarios, both from a tactical point of view and from like a personal point of view, right? But I think not all 27-year-old players are the same, right? They're all very different. And I think it's a case-by-case type scenario. Let's move on to talk a little bit about central players. And under this heading, I've got just a few questions about physical versus technical traits. Because I guess the physical expectations on players has risen with the rise of more intensive pressing systems. Obviously, I am probably a little bit biased in this regard because I spent a lot of time watching Leeds United play and and so I probably do over-exaggerate the importance of, uh, of of intensity in pressing. But I think generally there's, there's an expectation now that your attacking players, particularly in central areas, can't simply be creative players who aren't going to add anything to the off-ball side of the game. So, um, yeah, what extent do you think the remit for central players has changed in recent years and how does that impact the way that you scout? Honestly, not just for central players. I think for wingers, it's huge as well. I'd argue it's probably just as big for wingers as it is for strikers at this point, at least in our context. You mentioned like physical, technical stuff. I don't think pressing ability necessarily comes with a trade-off as far as technical ability, right? I think there's plenty of technical players that are really, really good pressers, that are really smart pressers. Obviously, there's a certain type of physicality and athleticism that that comes with it, right? And that that you need to have to be able to press and to be able to, you know, play 90 minutes or 90 minutes and whilst being a pressing attacker. There's players that are really good pressers, and then there's the players with the athleticism and physicality that don't press. And I think those are where the physicality are the most important because especially when you're talking about players that have a middling average, maybe slightly below average pressing output. And I say this both as like in the data and like visually, I think they often go along unless something weird is happening. A player like that, that has middling pressing output, but is quite athletic, quite physical, that as certain physical characteristics you can and they're not playing in a pressing context i think those players you can be quite hopeful that by bringing them into a pressing context they have the athleticism to adapt to it and they have the athleticism to increase their pressing output to significantly above average standard now i think there's that fraction of players that have such an abysmal pressing output that you just know that it's part of them right and it's you're not going to be able to get them to press unless something very strange happens, right? Or best case scenario, you can turn a you know, a player with really bad pressing output into maybe an average presser, right? It will never be a, a plus as far as that. And I think those are a different case. But I think you look for players that have the ability to press. Some of them are pressing already because they're playing pressing systems. That's good. Some of them are not pressing, but they're young and athletic and they have everything to be able to do it if they're brought into the right context. And then the ones that don't do it, you need to be very careful about depending on the context that you're in, right? Maybe you're in a context where 
that's not as valuable and I think then that's fine and in a context where pressing is super valuable you need to start you know accounting for the trade-offs and understanding if what they bring as far as possession is a worthwhile trade-off and we have players like that so it's definitely possible right it's not a it's not a complete red flag that just stops you from signing a player but it's a it's a pretty big one it's interesting just even me terming this as sort of physical versus technical there's this extent to which i think there is a technical quality to good physical output as well and i wonder if that kind of comes into it for you because obviously the easy thing to do is to just look at the pressing data and, and and say this player is doing a lot of pressing and then as you've said you know you can suggest well these players are athletic and, and they have the ability to be mobile enough to be decent pressers but to what extent does does the eye test come in here like how much do you watch a player and and determine how good they are at pressing from just watching them on the tape because it's something that I think again I watch a lot of Leeds United and, and and we have players who are very athletic and are very good at moving around the field but I wouldn't say they were necessarily good pressers in the actual pressing actions themselves. Yeah, well, I think it depends on the player, right? I think as far as a player that you need to come in to a starting role immediately, and that role includes a lot of, you know, off-the-ball work, pressing work, I think then it's important to actually understand how good of a presser the player is, actually, beyond just output, the quality and not just the volume. I think as far as maybe a younger player that will be a backup option or just a development piece that, you know, will come into the squad, maybe... You give him a couple of months until he becomes a rotation option or a starter. I kind of don't care if you're a bad presser because we press well. And if you have the ability to press and if you have the output, I know for a fact that in three months you're going to be a good presser. If I was in a context where I didn't trust the staff's ability to improve a player's pressing ability, then I'd perhaps be more careful about that. But I also think that, you know, how many legit pressing teams are bad? I'm, <laughs> I guess some of them are bad, but... <laughs> How many legitimate pressing teams are bad at pressing, right? I think the the issues often come elsewhere because I think often pressing coaches are, their problem tends to be them being quite, quite narrow focused about their pressing. You know this more better than everyone now. And I think for the most part, if you're getting a player to press, then you've got to, as long as the player has the tools for it, even if he has bad pressing timings or pressing technique or whatever you want to call it there's a certain amount of trust that the player will work work it out with the manager and if he if if he doesn't then that's that's quite strange because i think for the most part they do again the, the flaws tend to come elsewhere and if your managerial staff isn't good at coaching pressing then why are they pressing are they even <laughs> pressing like they're so i think that's a bit of a, a unique scenario yeah and i do think that all of this is so interesting because i think Getting a player to press is something that is a lot more commensurable than it is sort of like developing a player's technical abilities as well, right? It's it's sort of like a latent ability that players can have. If they, as you said, if, if they're athletic, if they're mobile, you can hope that you'll get something out of them as well. So you can almost get added value for a pressing team by scouting these players who you think actually might give you an upside off the ball as well. Yeah, you also, when it comes to attackers, maybe you're looking at a player that doesn't press or, or isn't in a, in a pressing context rather, right? And... So has very few opportunities to perform pressing actions in advanced areas. If he's a winger and he's helping his fullback really well and he's tracking opposite wingers really well and defending deep areas really well, that's a really positive sign, right? Same thing for attacking midfielders. Well, kind of. Attacking midfielders tend to... Most teams tend to defend with their attacking midfielder next to the striker anyway. But as far as wingers, especially, you know, if he's tracking back a lot, if he's acting as a set and fullback really well, you can kind of sense the attitude 
point, <laughs> shall we say, for the off-the-ball stuff. Because a lot of the pressing stuff is just willingness to do it, right? If the player has the the athleticism for it. So if a player is showing the attitude to, you know, defend deep areas, if you give him a chance to defend, you know, in the final third, he's going to kill it. At the risk of turning an offensive section into a off-the-ball section entirely, maybe showing my face a bit too much, but let's move back to, to the more attacking side of things. Let's talk a little bit about, about strikers. We did have a sideways question here from friend of the podcast, Grant Gendo, about finishing as a skill. Grace Robertson yesterday put out a, an article on on finishing, and, and that's the sort of constantly return to refrain of of analytics right talking about is finishing a skill how do you how can you talk about about finishing and the debate generally being that you know it's more important the players get into the right sort of situations to score rather than have have great necessarily finishing technique grant gender wanted to talk a little bit about maybe the the more i guess mental slash emotional side of goal scoring and finishing and he was talking about how he thinks that there's a, a level to which the ability to to just have a clear head, make the right decisions in front of goal, etc., are important as well. And he was wondering whether or not there's any way that you can scout that sort of thing as well. Is is finishing something that you just entirely scout in terms of the numbers and have a look at their return per their shots, or do you do a, a, maybe a little bit more of a psychological profiling of players when you're scouting them as strikers? Finishing is a tough one. There's a spectrum to it. I think there's people on one end of the spectrum which is the finishing is a skill people, the, the purists, if you will. And then there's the other end of the spectrum, which is the XG is my life <laughs> end of the spectrum. And I think if I am to place myself in that, I'd probably say, I was going to say close to the middle, but I'd probably say, you know, leaning more towards, close to the middle, but leaning more towards the analytics side. Because ultimately, I do think that in general, the consistent goal scoring threats are the ones that consistently get into goal scoring positions and that's it for the most part. But I think you also need a really big sample for that. In general, I think what Grant says makes sense. He mentioned something about once you, you get access to a player's personality and and whatever else, if that weighs into, you know, the being a cold finisher and uh, the men- the mentality side of finishing. And I think there's a little bit of something there. Although I also think that, like I said in the last episode, everything in regards to players' personality and stuff like that is the role of the director of football, of the chief scout, of these people that are higher up on the ladder, that get access to the player, that get access to the agent, that get access to past coaches and whoever else that can provide references, right? So in a, if you're in a step behind and you can't get access to that, although I do think there's a point to it and I think Grant makes a, a nice point about it I think there's just other things to look at as well right so shooting technique has a certain weight or should have a certain weight to it specifically when it comes to players that are legitimately good at shooting from outside the box I think those are real right <laughs> it's not just a, as much as DSG will tell you otherwise I think there's there is a spectrum and there's a there's you know a group of players that have legitimately great shooting technique from outside the box and I think that's there's a certain weight to that it was massively overvalued by you know old school scouts but I also think it's now getting to a point where it's undervalued then there's ball placement I think that's a little bit more important for you know nines or just players that have a higher much higher shooting volume like in the box and such I think there's something to ball placement I also think there's you need a big sample to like get to try and take inclusions from that, but I think it's 
it can be an, a, a nice indicator of a player's ability to finish to a certain extent. And then it's just chance types. I think there are players out there that are consistently great finishers. There are guys that are consistently great finishing above their XG numbers, but it's often because they're really good in a specific position from a specific type of shots, right? And I think when you think you think of Son from Tottenham is kind of the always the player called out for this, and I think it makes sense. And I think there's a specific type of finish where he's legitimately the best player in the world. And I think that is valuable, especially because you once you understand the repeatability of it, right? You understand that like the player isn't magical. The player is just like there's a certain spot where he's just there's a certain muscle memory about it, and he's just an elite, elite finisher, right? And I think that's fine. I think you need to understand these in- indicators to then like weigh them in your conclusions about a player or a player's ability to finish, right? Again, in general, getting to goal scoring positions matters a lot more, and I also think that should be weighed more. But at the same time, there's often you so often look at nines that have had one or two seasons at senior level, right? And I think maybe the sample isn't that big. And maybe then you got to look at the other factors as well to try and add a little bit of something else to your to your evaluation. I also think that, you know, if a player is good at getting into good finishing positions, and there's a lot of players like that, and a player is a bad finisher, and there are players like that, you can fix that. And you can also fit the other way around, but I think it's tougher. There's higher chance of succeeding turning, you know, someone that gets into goal scoring positions into, you know, from a below average finisher to an average finisher, which means a lot of goals because the player's getting into goal scoring positions consistently. Then for a good finisher who doesn't get into goal scoring positions because that's a bad habit to break. But, you know, again, it, it, it heavily depends on, on a lot of factors, I think. There's a lot of studies about this. I also think they don't conclude that much because it's quite a complex topic. But yeah, those are all like kind of indicators that we look at to be able to be confident about it. I also think that when it comes to nines, the more I work in this and the more I think about this, which this is going to sound very dumb, but the less I care about whether my nine scores goals and the more I care about the rest of my nine skill set, which isn't to say there isn't an importance to it, Goals are really good. <laughs> goals, win, <laughs> goals win your games. We get it. I'm not insane. But I think once you realize that there's so much in a striker skill set beyond that, not to be super specific, but like so much, so much of the conversation around Vlaovic and his price tag revolved around whether his finishing ability was going to continue to be way above his XG. And so little was about this guy being an elite guy at both running in behind and holding up ply and having one of the best physical skill sets in the world for a nine. All of that is so much more important. So much more important, especially for a dominant team. Because as far as dominant teams, there's other goal scoring sources and you get a lot more play out of your nine beyond the last touch, right? So again, there's a really big value to it, but at the same time, you can subdivide finishing and then finishing is only a subdivision of what a player is and there's there's a lot that goes into it. I think I think we've it's important to just know the trends and the indicators and just kind of the patterns of what make a player tick and then you kind of weigh that all in at the end in your evaluation. When you're talking about evaluating players who have a certain shooting skill set in particular, so you, you mentioned Son and his ability to score from, I guess, wide positions is, is what's often highlighted with him. But even someone like Raheem Sterling here is not really 
famed for his great finishing ability. But he's one of those players who you can get to the edge of the box on his right foot, cutting back, curling it into that top right-hand corner. It scores a lot like that. Now, obviously, that's not really a repeatable kind of shot, perhaps. Maybe it is more for teams like Manchester City who are going to be camped out at the edge of boxes. But do you actually scout players per their sort of shooting skill set in that sense? So the players that you'll say, this player is good at scoring these kinds of chances and these are sorts of chances that we're trying to create therefore that is player is a good option for us i think that's definitely something you mentioned right i think again it's part of a larger thing because the player is a a billion things that he does right and you kind of try to sum everything up because you try and avoid clogging decision makers with too much info but i think those types of things are all like worth of a mention to a certain extent or at the very least they're worth of like increasing your confidence about a player or decreasing your confidence about a player and his ability to fit within your system. Should we move on to talk about the defensive side of things? I think the the big thing with scouting, defending is going to always come down to the difficulty of maybe not only simply representing a player in terms of their data and a lot of these sort of questions are asked about the paucity of, of really insightful metrics when it comes to scouting defensive players. But also it's difficult to, I think, scout players from an eye test point of view as well uh, more difficult than it is to scout attacking players would you agree with that you're nodding at me yeah no I'm nodding because I realized that I yesterday when I was starting to prep for the podcast I meant to add this to my rundown of things to say and I forgot and now you reminded me of it which is exactly that okay let's be real when we mentioned defenders we're really talking about center backs fullbacks are easy ish (laughs) center backs are really difficult so we're mostly talking about center backs here. Beyond the data stuff, which we'll, we'll get to the data stuff in a minute, as I know there's questions about it. With center backs, there's a much bigger tendency for people to be unable to separate how they like a player to defend and what is good or bad. And I'm not saying I'm not guilty of it. I think I'm way less guilty of it now, but I'm adapting through it. When it comes to attackers... Even midfielders, like, I think people understand roles better. And I think maybe one day people will understand center back roles better as well. But I think for now, center backs is a position where there's a lot of actions where people's opinions, and by people, I mean not just the public, but like decision makers in football, people's opinions are so based on what they think is the, the way of approaching defending that they like or that they associate themselves with. And then that they allow that to cloud their good or bad action type judgment or good or bad player type judgment, right? And I think, again, I've also been guilty of this in the past, judging center backs is hard, but I think this happens to center backs more than anything else. I think it's a, it's probably, like you said, the toughest position to, to judge even in the eye test because it's so system-based, because it's so partnership-based, right? Or trio-based? Is a trio a partnership, I guess? Um, <laughs> Threesome, I believe, is the word. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, it's so based on who you have around you, right? And it's so based on the system. And it's so based on, you know, how a player defends. And then the way you judge it is very individual-based. I feel like very individual... By individual, I mean the individual that's judging. So very influenced by your opinions and experiences and the way you think of defending. So all of that makes center backs really hard to judge, even from a video point of view. 
Yeah, and I guess maybe that's because, as you've said, when we're judging other positions, there's a lot more weight put on the individual actions of those players in those positions. Whereas with, as you've said, with centre backs, it's you're you're reliant upon other people being good for you to be good more than you are in any other position. I think. Yeah, it's that, and then it's just with the other positions, people understand roles better, right? People just understand that like a certain winger has a tendency to be a width provider or be more of an inside forward, or a certain midfielder is like people understand what. A ball-winning midfielder is, or you know, uh, more of a sitting six is, or what a certain type of ten is. A coach can drop in like a pressing ten that only works if like Fellaini as a ten or whatever, right? And people will understand that when he doesn't do certain things, people will understand that oh, he doesn't do certain things because he has this certain type of profile and he plays in this unique role and he brings these things to the table and he won't bring these, right? And people won't be taking screenshots whilst being like. He didn't play this pass because people understand in general that that's not something he will do and he'll give you other things in general for the most part. And I think for midfielders and for, you know, or for nines, right? If you have like a more target man nine, there's space in behind to run into and the player doesn't make that run. For the most part, people will be like, again, most analysis will be more so of the tone of, oh, if it, if it was a different player, maybe he would have made that run, right? And not like, why isn't he making that run? Because people understand that, you know, the role is different, the characteristics are different, and all that. And I think when it comes to centre-backs, it's tougher to comprehend what the role is. It's tougher to comprehend what are the tendencies of a player and what are the orders from the coach, and to tougher to, you know, not get your judgment cloudy by your own biases, and it's, yeah, it becomes more complex. Yeah, and I guess another difficulty of scouting centre-backs in particular is that centre-backs' main role is to defend space and control space. And that's a really, really ephemeral (laughs) concept. And there's different ways of doing that. And certainly for me, like watching Leeds United for the last four seasons, where even four seasons in, I think Leeds fans didn't really understand what the impact of man-marking has on the way that you look at defensive qualities and players, for example. I suppose the the upshot of that, for at least from a data point of view, is that when you're talking about uh, uh, players whose main role is to is to control space, it's really hard to find any metrics which sort of match up to that. So we, we had a question from Aidan Ray who said, when scouting for defensive players, especially central defenders, there has been a bit of discourse on social media front recently on data integration to the position. How do you feel data can best be integrated when scouting defensive players slash central defenders especially? And I guess that a lot of that comes down to the fact that a lot of what a defender is doing is off the ball. And all, pretty much all of our metrics are on-ball metrics where you're you're measuring the volume of, of some something happening, right? Basically. Judging centre backs is hard, and data for sc- data scouting for centre backs is bad. <laughs> I think that's kind of the main point, and you need to like approach it that way. I think you need to approach it understanding that for every position, data scouting is a very useful tool. If you know how to use it, it can be tremendous. If you don't know how to use it, it can be still somewhat useful. <laughs> when it comes to centre backs. <laughs> You need to approach it from a point of view of, if I don't know how to use the data, this is completely useless. And if I know how to use the data, this will provide a tiny fraction of information. And I think that's what makes it so different and so difficult. I think nowadays you can create and put together like a series of metrics that can consistently find you center backs that have a more proactive style. We've done that and I'm really confident about it, especially when you can add speed data to it, I think you can get a conjecture, is that a word? Like a mixture of metrics. Keep the first one in, if it's the better word. <laughs> <laughs> Conjunction, I think. Yeah, whatever. Think yeah. 
<laughs> Just say it's a Portuguese word that you've translated. Yeah. Oh, yes, I'm speaking Latin. Um, <laughs> no, you can get like a, a series of metrics, right? A combination of metrics that is what we've done that allows me to be quite confident as far as, you know, the data picking up proactive style center backs. I also think that there's a rise in proactive style center backs and a rise in need for them and a rise in acceptance of them. And so just in general, really good time for data scouting with center backs because finally there's a certain profile type that you can pick up fairly confidently if you know the data's limitations and if you work metrics really well around it, which is what we've did because we have a preference for that type of center back. Now, as far as more reactive center backs, the, the cats, as you'll call them. You won't catch me calling them that. No, I thought... I just call them proactive center backs and... And reactive. reactive. Yeah, well, that's yeah. what I call them because I can't be putting dogs and cats in actual reports for an actual <laughs> football club. But I think it's <laughs> I think it's funny and I will use it in this scenario. So the cat types, if you will, the more reactive center backs, I think it's really difficult to assess it with the data, right? Obviously, for every position you do a lot of video scouting regardless of what the data tells you or I do anyway but I think for reactive center back especially the data is borderline pointless it's not pointless because there's certain aspects of the data right ability in aerial duels uh, on the ball stuff there's you know I think people can consistently build decent ball progression metrics I think the defensive stuff is really tough to bring up now I think this is mostly complaints shall I say, coming from a more dominant team's point of view. Because if you're looking at centre-backs from a less dominant team, or just in general, a team that approaches games with a low block, that that doesn't defend the eye, that is just, you know, a more defensive-minded, classic low-block team, I think you can find centre-backs through data really easily, to be honest. Like, not really easily, but more akin to what, Again, I'm using words that I don't know, don't know the meaning to. Again, it's fine, yeah. God damn it. Okay, so you're going <laughs> <laughs> to... Should we tell that bit out? <laughs> more keen to the other positions, right? Because you just have centre-backs that perform a lot more defensive actions, right? That's all it comes down to. And if you have not necessarily more defensive actions, but more defensive actions in contact with the ball or in contact with the possession player, right? Because I think if you're defending space an entire game for a team with 60% possession... You're constantly doing defensive actions, but they're just not picked up by the data, right? So that that's what I mean by defensive action. So if you're in a less dominant team, a more counterattacking team, more deep block side, I think the data can really help you find center backs because it evens out some of the limitations that the data would otherwise have. So so that's it. But I think it's you know it's a lot to consider. There's a lot of factors to this. Let's talk about back threes and back fours and scouting. I guess my particularly- favorite. <laughs> I guess back back to the mainly again probably centre backs as well. So I think an interesting test case is maybe Spurs at the moment because we've obviously had a lot of conversations with our good pal Nathan Clark about about what the build up of a back three looks like. And I suppose again the problem here is that if you you just can't assume that a back three is going to look the same in in any team, right? But yeah, what's what's your sort of general take on? I suppose the difference is like how do you look for centre backs or centre centre backs versus outside centre backs? What difference does that make to your scouting? So my point of view on this is that like it's it's a huge factor, right? I think it's something that again we've been talking about contact so much for the past like two hours of podcast, and we've talked about how centre backs are so much more affected by contacts than 
and by system than the rest of the, the position. So defending in a four or defending in a three is hugely different. That said, I haven't worked for a team that uses a three back consistently yet in my career. And therefore, when I look at this topic, I think of this topic from a three back to four back conversion rather than the other way around, if that makes sense. I also think that a four back to three back conversion is much easier. Like players have extra support. It's a lot easier for everybody. Defenders would love it. More freedom. It's it's great. But I'm not in that scenario. So I'm mostly mostly going to talk about three back to four back point of view. So if it's a, an older player, obviously you look into how the player has played in a four back before. If they've played in a four back before, I think if it's a center back that has played their entire career in the three back, that's kind of worrisome. Their entire career and they're on the older side, I mean. Uh, if it's a young player, I think there's obviously the opportunity to adapt. If the if the skill set is worth pursuing, you think. But basically, I think something that's really kind of undervalued or underlooked that, I guess, is just the context of the three-back, right? Because I think a three-back in a smaller team, I think will have their players transfer better to the dynamic of a back four. So, you know, a wing-back in a smaller team where he has a more offensive role with extra protection, but still has to, you know, defend quite consistently because they're not in a, in a, super, in a super dominant team. Moving to a fullback role, I think a fullback role in a dominant team is quite similar to a wingback role in a less dominant team, is what I'm saying. So that transition is fairly seamless. And then as far as white center backs in a trio for a non-dominant team tend to transfer reasonably well or in my mind, I think there's a, in general, there's a higher chance of them tra- transferring reasonably well to a pair of center backs in a four in a dominant team. Because wide center backs in a back three for a smaller team, they defend space a lot more. And they defend space in a more similar way to what a pair of center backs do in the dominant side, right? So they have to defend wide areas, they have to defend more open space, and a dominant team's center backs, especially if you defend the high line, they all have to do that. So I think that transition can be quite decent as well. So as far as the transition between, you know, getting a center back or getting just a defender from a team that plays a big three but is quite a dominant team to another dominant team in a bet four, I think it's quite tougher. Because there you have the wing backs in a dominant team are practically wingers and they're in general, they will struggle defensively to play in a bat four, even if it's in a dominant team, just because they're not being exposed to the same experiences defensively. And then the wide center bats in a dominant team have grown into this unique role over the last two to three years that is kind of their own thing, which is a bit in between a center bat and a fullback, and a role that's really good for a certain type of player, and a role that basically has no role in a bet four, in a classic bet four, that is, right? I think that role can transfer well to, you know, a four back that's asymmetric, that uses a tuck then fullback, right? But in general, talking about, you know, three back to four back conversion from a dominant team to another, I think the wide center backs in the dominant team play a very in between center back and fullback role that struggles to fit in a back four which is why you see the rise now with the rise of the back three the rise of certain players in those roles those wide center backs 
that were kind of either forgotten or kind of mismatched players that didn't really have a, a great fit. And then the central center back, when it comes to, you know, again, dominant team in the bat three to dominant team in the bat four, the central center back in that dominant team, I think, is the one with the higher chance of translating to just a bat four in another dominant team. But then then that will lead you to a conversation about what type of central center back it is, because for years, in a three back, usually the middle center back is the player that stays back the most and nowadays there's a lot of teams that have used it in reverse that are using even the central center back as the most proactive of the three of center backs he doesn't defend wide areas but he's super proactive at stepping out of the back both with and without the ball i think that's all fine regardless i think that type of role transfers well but when it comes to both wing backs and wide center backs from one dominant team to another i think you'll struggle Again, each case is a case. Every player is different. I'm just saying that in general, looking at the topic of three bats to four bats and not looking at specific center back named X, Y, or Z, I think these are just kind of my guidelines. I suppose uh, another factor to add to this is probably the issue of build-up as well. So it's not unusual now to see center midfielders dropping in between a back two and creating back back threes as well and and the idea of build-up is is now I think a lot more fundamental to teams across the board I suspect that a lot of teams now are much more comfortable playing possession dominant football because of the increase in in professionalism in the game and there are more teams now who are expected to dominate in various ways and so there will be more teams that need to be able to dominate the ball and therefore build up so interested in your take on scouting players for build-up again you're going to say this is contextual and will depend on the way that your team builds up, but how much more important do you think that the idea of a scouting a centre-back, for example, or a full-back in terms of build-up is now than it was maybe five years ago? I think it's very important. Just like you say, like, not only are there more possession-dominant teams, I think a, a key factor that we often don't talk about is there's a ton of non-dominant possession teams, like counter-attacking base teams, like teams that are often in the back foot, that still build up out of the back when they do have the ball, right? And I think that's kind of the major difference, I'd say, is that like not only do the possession teams build up out of the back, the ones that don't have possession that often do it as well, or at least a portion of them do, right? And they use their few possession sequences to play out of the back. So there's a huge increase, or that happens because there's a huge increase of center backs that are comfortable in possession. Now, as far as how do I scout build up, I think because of the way I see football, I think I've often overvalued build-up, actually. Earlier in my career, or before my career was a career, I guess, if you want to put it that way, like I think I struggled more to just separate what was the team's identity and what the team wanted to like what I like to see and what is important to me as a you know football watcher or as someone that, you know, has his own system and his head or whatever, right? And I think one of those things was... I overvalued a center back's ability on the ball, which is, I know I, re, I now realized I'm giving you the opposite answer to what you wanted, <laughs> which isn't to say it's not important, right? It's a huge deal. It's, it's really important. But I think depending on your system, you need to weigh that in consideration. And I think we need to realize that a center back or any player for that matter won't have it all. You won't have a skill set that's just a 20 out of 20 in every, <laughs> in everything, so there's trade-offs and you need to realize what's a priority and what isn't 
So I, I think that's something that I've kind of grown with and I've, that I've improved that, which is just prioritizing different skills and weighing them within a skill set. Now, I think a center of accessibility on the ball is really important. And I think it's really important on both ends of the spectrum, especially. So if you have a center back that's like one of the best in the world as a passer or as a ball carrier, that is so good, that can impact the game super often. And that impacts the game in a positive way so much that like you almost build your system around it, or at least you build certain parts of the system to kind of protect him and allow him to provide that to the team because he's so good. And then there's another section of center backs, which are just completely incapable on the ball. And I think those are just like, that's a huge problem, right? Just being completely... in it. Not talking. I'm not talking about a player that can't play a progressive pass. I'm talking about a player that can't receive under pressure, right? I'm talking about a player that can't, that you know is going to be targeted by every pressing team that you come up against. They're going to guide the press to his to his side, and he's going to fumble it. And I don't think you can have that because that's a heavy limitation to your system. With both of those ends of the spectrum in mind, most center backs are in the middle, <laughs> right? Most center backs are now technically proficient enough to be part of a possession side because they come through good academies, they've played in midfield growing up or as a fullback or whatever, and they're very decent on the ball. And maybe they don't add a lot of ball progression as far as, you know, as a carrier or as a dribbler, maybe they're not breaking lines often at all. And that can be frustrating if you're me, I guess, because I often overvalued that. But I think if the rest of the skill set is there, And if the team is ready to handle that, right, if you have a midfielder that, you know, is very capable of providing ball progression, or if you have a system that is so good at providing outlets in possession that it doesn't matter if he's good at breaking lines, he has basically no choice but to break lines because there's so many different options, right? Then it's fine, right? So I think it's something that you value. I think it's something that you have to contextualize in their system to understand if how much of the system is improving or not letting show their ability on the ball. There's a Burnley centre-back that's really good on the ball. I think Tarkowski is really good on the ball, or used to be. He didn't forget it. He's not in a scenario to showcase it, right, most of the time. And I think there's players in possession-dominant teams, centre-backs in possession-dominant teams, that aren't particularly good on the ball. But again, they've been given so many outlets in possession that It's not like they seem good, but it's like it's not a problem at all. The ball still progresses, right? So you kind of weigh that in, and then you weigh that in for your needs because, you know, maybe you already have a possession-dominant centre-back, so maybe you don't need someone that's that level. Or maybe you do, and you weigh it more, and you're ready to take a trade-off of, like, maybe this player is kind of weak in the air, or maybe he is incapable of defending space, or maybe he he has some inability on the turn, or whatever it might be. So I think it's something that you value and let you value everything else and you need to weigh it within your system and within what you're being asked to as well, which is the other part of this, which is maybe you think the team needs a centre-back that has this or that characteristic, but that's not what's being requested from the manager or the director of football or the chief scout or whoever runs your scenario, right? And at that point, you just got to do your job and find someone that matches up the skills that are being requested or you raise the question of why is that being requested instead of something else and you have a conversation, right? It might be good here to just move on and talk a little bit about 
defensive midfielders because I think that sort of fits in quite nicely with what you've just been talking about. I think that in the past, defensive midfielders were were often sort of used as purely sort of defensive destroyers able to break up uh, opposition attacks and the expectation now is perhaps more that that you'll, you you get a bit more possession out of your DMs. Again, I'm, I'm sure you'll say that it, it doesn't matter as long as the system is working around them and they fit in that system, but how would you apply what you've just said to the role of the defensive midfielder? Yeah, I think it's like clearer, right? I think people understand defensive midfielders better because people have, have experienced you know, both Pirlo and Gattuso, right? People have experienced midfielders of different types and people are aware that midfielders have different characteristics and that's fine. There might be arguments about whether a player is this or that, which, you know, includes your view on the position of what this position should do or should not do. But ultimately, getting a defensive midfielder or center midfielder, it all comes down to what you're being requested and what system do you play and what midfield partners that player has or maybe if it's a young player that isn't supposed to crack the 11 right away maybe getting something explicitly different as far as characteristics go because it's kind of a no pressure situation and it'd be good to have someone dif- with someone with a different skill set i think all of those are important things but yeah so it, it depends on on what you're asked again it's like the winger stuff yeah the position has evolved there's different roles now but I don't think ultimately it doesn't affect me that much because I just look for a certain player type and that's it. I think, again, like I said about the wingers, it ultimately affects me from a point of view of, huh, there's very few defensive midfielders of this type in the market or this other type, right? I think that's about it. Which brings us on to the area that you said was easy, fullbacks slash wingbacks. It, it might be worth talking about, again, the, the differences between the two and and the fact that you can use them, obviously, in, in more attacking or, or defensive iterations. So what would you say here in terms of looking at fullbacks? And I, I suppose from a point of view that, that you will probably be looking for either, again, very specific roles, but probably a role that is either going to be held by someone who is better at one or the other. It's unlikely to have... You're unlikely to have fullbacks who are just 20s all the way around, as you say. Yeah, I think there's one. (laughs) (laughs) I think there's a right back in the market like that. Anyway, regardless of how I feel about that position. So I think what I said about fullbacks and wingbacks applies here, right? What I said about the way wingbacks transfer to to fourbacks. Again, if it's a wingback in a smaller team, moving to a bigger team, I think that transition should be a lot better than, you know, wingback to fullback in between two dominant teams, right? Because wingbacks in a dominant team, they'll often be guys that were wingers six months ago or yesterday. And the the defensive side is, is often not there to play in a four. Beyond that, yeah. I mean, as far as fullbacks, I think fullbacks has been the position where there's been more evolution, more like tactical evolution in the last few years, I think. Just because we had that early 2010s, okay, maybe late 2000s, like super attacking fullback kind of situation, moving away from a defensive fullback. But now we're seeing actual different types and not just defensive fullback versus offensive fullback, right? Now you're seeing different types of offensive fullbacks, fullbacks that can be inverted or that can at the very least do both. Like I was saying, like guys that can attack the F space that can provide stuff in build-up, that can go inside and outside. There's fullbacks that can be goal-scoring threats consistently. And then the defensive fullbacks are not just defensive fullbacks now. There's a rise in asymmetric formations that have a more defensive fullback and a very 
with providing fullback on the other side. But in those formations, there's often... The defensive fullback is not a purely defensive piece. There's a lot of teams that look for that person to be an elite build-up passer. Or a really good build-up passer, at least, right? Or come in as a third midfielder. So there's a whole variety of different roles now. And I think that's where I feel like there's more different roles. But at the same time, you see that more at the eye level. And if you're looking at smaller teams... Because that's what scouting is. Because ultimately, everyone knows who Carvajal is or whatever, right? Everyone knows who Danny Alves is. But if you're looking at smaller teams, the roles will tend to be more standard. So once again, there is an evolution. There is an evolution in fullback roles. There is an evolution in what is asked of them. You often don't find those in the wild per se, because the smaller teams often still use kind of standard fullback roles. Now you look at a fullback that's a really good build-up passer, and now you value that more because it's like, oh, wow, he's maybe he doesn't provide me that much in the final third, but he's a really good build-up passer. Like, there's something in this because now we ask that of our fullbacks as well, you know? But yeah, that's about it. And then there's the, again, like, there's the, the wide centre-back in the three situation, which is kind of a fullback role as well, or a different type of fullback role. In terms of, I guess, again, the scouting side of things, if you were to be looking at, at bringing in a player into a back four who has played as a wing back, how would that impact your, your decision making? I guess if you say you say you have a back four, you want to have a fairly attacking fullback on one side. Are there things that you would recommend that people think about when they bring in a player who is generally played their whole career as a, as a wing back? So the biggest concern there would be the defensive side, right? Assuming that the player can provide the offensive output because he's playing as a wingback, just the biggest concern would just be how does the player do defensively? Now, that said, wingbacks in a smaller team, they've often been fullbacks before, right? I think the ones in bigger teams are the ones that tend to come from winger spots. Not always, but, you know, usually. And if a player has played as a fullback before, then he, or he should have the positional bases to, to work the position. And if he hasn't, then that's kind of the side you have to work on. But it's a bit of what I said before about just inerrant traits of a player versus what you can improve. I think if a player has really, really impressive attacking output and the defensive output is middling, you should be able to trust your coaching staff to improve him positionally and improve his off-the-ball work. If the defensive output is really really bad and he really is super flawed on that side you gotta weigh it against the offensive output right you gotta understand whether the trade-off is worthwhile is there any rules of thumb with respect to like wingback data defensively that you would say well they're going to be you know you can you can expect that their numbers would look better if they were playing in a fullback system and is there any sort of conversion that you can perform there i mean just in general volume of actions will be different right and I think volume of actions will be different. There's a chance that if you do have pressing data, there's a chance that wingbacks have higher pressing data compared to fullbacks, which could decrease with the change to a fullback. But again, the, the data will be a little bit more about volume. But what you care about is how good the player is at defending 1v1s, if he commits a lot of fouls, how does he defend the back post, how does he align to the defensive line, all of that. And you often don't get the same things as a wingback in the data so you'll have to watch the video and, and all that feels a little bit wrong to end on wingbacks but um, we, we do have a couple of questions to, to sort of take us to the end of this podcast it's become a mammoth episode but Be- before we head to the questions I forgot to say something and I want to 
go over it. That will make me feel better about not ending on wingbacks. Yeah, I know, which is why I wanted to add it now, <laughs> which is we've talked about, you know, technical stuff and, and physical stuff. And I think we've talked a lot about, you know, the importance of physical characteristics. And obviously there's a lot of physical stuff that you look for in a player, speed, ability to win duels, change of pace, especially for, you know, wide forwards and strikers, fullbacks. Straight line speed. That's my favorite. Straight line speed. None of this wobbly <laughs> line speed, no. Not for me. <laughs> Not interested in how my players perform in, in wobbly directions, just straight line speed. <laughs> like a drag race. <laughs> no, yeah, but I think one like physical like indicator kind of that's very, very underrated is just availability. And I think I go over this a lot because this is something that I've started to value a lot in the last few years. And it's something that I, I think, once again, I'm giving a shout out to Ben Torvani because he's he's talked about this with me a lot as well. And I think he's absolutely right about the concept of just, not just the concept, but the value of availability, right? I think in an era where there's so many games and so many competitions, there's huge value to being able to have a player that you can trust will put in 3,000 minutes a season, almost no matter what. I say this almost like regardless of performance because there's huge value from like a squad building point of view, from a tactical setup consistency point of view, from a financial point of view, and having someone that will give you 3,000 minutes year on year on year, even if it's someone that's performing at like a a 6.5 or 7 out of 10 kind of rate consistently, right? Because just the pure availability has a value to it. For a long time, I underrated that value. But nowadays, with the high rate of games and high rate of injuries and all of that, I think there's a lot of value to it. And I think the other way around, if a player is injury prone or for whatever reason is just not capable of being on the pitch for more than a, a small percentage of the games, I think this has to be like weighed heavily negatively in this case in your, in your evaluation of the player, right? We put a lot of weight on quality and performance quality and ability, and I think that's correct. We should. But I think there is there is value in availability. I think minute output is quite an underrated metric, I'd say. As a Leeds fan, I'm all too aware of the, the limits of signing injury-prone players. As I mentioned, we do have a couple of questions just to, to close up. So first one, actually a good one from Emilio, which is about, I guess, the, the more... Uh, mental and psychological side so he asks in your experience is it possible to get a sense of adaptability and the ability to understand new tactics through interviews social media and so on so good question so what do you make of that i think there's definitely something to it i also think that there's a certain type of player personality that is willing to give interviews like that especially when we're talking about younger players or whatever that you don't know that much about their personality yet there's only a certain type of player confident enough or as a certain type of personality to do those interviews regularly to a point where you get kind of a mental image of who the player is. So I think there's something to it. I think you're better off not necessarily talking directly to the player, but the football world is very connected, right? So you're almost always going to be able to find someone that has coached the player or someone that has coached someone that has been close to the player or you know someone that has played with them, whatever, you can find connections. And, th- and I think you're almost always better off like that. But I think there's some, there's something to it. There's there's value there for sure. Do you do that much of that aspect of scouting? Yeah, quite a lot. Yeah, you kind of go over everything as much as you can. And by that, I just mean like most players are quite neutral. Like there's just not much to it. Like 
you look at their social media and it's just a regular Instagram or whatever and or you do a, a Google search and you try to go deep on them and whatever and you don't find much because it's just a regular person, right? You kind of give extra importance to that when there's, you know, those edge cases where maybe a player is rumored to be a, of a certain personality that he actually doesn't have, right? Or vice versa. Those situations have happened in the past, right? You've had to kind of do extra digging and, and kind of paint a, a different picture of the player in your head. Uh, and then one final question from Grandgender again. Just asking, how do you sell your suggestions to your superiors? So you've talked a lot about having your scouting process dictated by higher-ups, but how does the process work the other way around? Well, you have to build trust, right? I think naturally you might have a little trust from whichever decision-maker signed you to the club, but there's, for most clubs, there's a lot of decision-makers in power, right? There's a lot of hoops that names need to get through to become, for an offer to happen, right? And you have to build trust if you want to be listened to to a certain extent, which I'm not saying I'm making decisions. That's not what I'm saying. But I think, firstly, you build trust by, you know, you build trust by working alongside someone. You build trust by sharing insight. You build trust by listening more than you speak, especially if you're like a young person that's in the early stages of your career, talking to people that are so much more experienced than you. Listening is important and like people seeing that you care. And then you build trust by having your suggestions it. That doesn't mean in the club necessarily, but you kind of build a repertoire of players that you were really pushy on that succeeded either at the club or elsewhere. And I think at some point it clicks that there's a certain level of competence and a certain level of a process to what you're doing or what your department is doing in this case. And then you build trust. And then, again, doesn't mean you get to make decisions, but it just means that the work that your department puts out gets to someone and has a certain value to it and that's all you can ask for well tiago we have reached the end of this mammoth interview i told you this was going to be long i texted you this morning you said it would be you're absolutely right i had a lot to say and people said interesting things so i had to answer Hmm. yes and i should say before we finish thanks again for people signing up on the patreon and as always, do make sure that you share the podcast with people that you think might be interested in it. There's been plenty of interesting stuff in this one. So, Tiago, thank you for, for coming on. What's the best way for people to catch up with your stuff? Yeah, like I said in the last episode, I don't tweet much these days. But yeah, my, my account is at Tiago ESTV on Twitter. And you, you can catch up to me there, I guess, if you want to ask anything. I can provide answers personally, I guess. Maybe. Depending on the question. Yeah. And that's Tiago without an H. Yeah, I don't. <laughs> Do you want me to confirm that? Yeah, <laughs> I can confirm. Yeah. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> well, Tiago, thanks so much for coming on. Yeah, no problem. You've been listening to a podcast about tactics. I'm John McKenzie. If you like our artwork, then do check out Frankie Mitchell's portfolio over on her Twitter account at MadeByFrankie. Her work is incredible and she's often available for commissions, so do check that out. And then this music, written and recorded by my good friend Joe Hill and his North Ark Septet. You can find out more about them and listen to the music at www.joehillmusic.bandcamp.com. See you next week.